When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey guys, I'm really excited about today's episode. So here's the backstory. I read this fascinating article about six months ago by my friend Heather Long in the Washington Post about Mary Daly. She is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. And the minute I read it, I knew that I had to have her on Boss Files to share her story. Not only is she only the second woman to hold that post in the bank's 105-year history, at 15 years old, she dropped out of high school and she worked in a donut shop. But a woman named Betsy changed her life and helped her find resilience. That difference that allowed me to escape, Yeah, I want to repeat that escape velocity for others and so that everybody has a chance to do that if they want. Escape velocity. I've I heard had you escape say this velocity. before. What is escape velocity? So escape velocity, if you're blasting off to the moon, you need enough momentum, you need enough velocity sure. to escape the atmosphere. So if you think of the context we all grow up in, an environment you grew up in, you often need enough velocity, enough momentum, enough oomph to actually break free from that and then decide how you want to live. And I got escape velocity. Today, she is crafting U.S. monetary policy, and she has made income inequality a key part of her agenda. She's calling out a diversity crisis in economics. And as the Fed lowers rates for a third time this year, she stands by that decision. And she responds to President Trump's continuing criticism of the institution. The president has called the Fed, quote, out of control, wrong, boneheads, no guts, no sense, no vision. Are you worried, Mary, about the independence of the Fed? No. The reason I'm not worried is because our independence has been longstanding since 1913. And we continue to walk through. I tell this story all the time because it's really meaningful. So the FOMC room is where we go to meet. And that is, it's a big, it's, it's, it's a magnificent room. And when you cross the threshold, it's a, there's a certain reverence. And you cross the threshold and you go in mm-hmm. and politics literally never come up, ever. So you guys don't care what the we president don't talk says, about insulting it. the Fed? You don't talk about it? We don't ever talk about it. It's an important conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here is San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly. Mary Daly, thank you for doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure. My friend Heather Long wrote a piece about you in the Washington Post. And when I read it, I was like six months ago, I said, I need to meet her and I need to have her on. So this is sort of a dream come true. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. That was a nice piece that I did. It was. It was. So you've made history in a number of ways, which we'll talk about over the next hour or so. But you're you're only the third woman among 12 Federal Reserve presidents, only the second to be president of the San Francisco Fed in the bank's 105-year history. But what people don't know and don't read in your bio or see on your resume is that you're actually really not supposed to be sitting here right now, are you? That's not the way life was going to work for you. No, completely not. In fact, if you asked me back then, did I think this was in my future? The answer was absolutely not. I thought my future included being a bus driver, and that would be a really great job. But I got lucky. I took opportunities when they were presented to me on, with lots of coaching and help, and, and here I am. So it's remarkable. The way you, you say it is you, you've said, I've only ever swum upstream. Like the current has never pushed you along. You have swum against the current. Right. I have always swum against the current. But the really interesting thing when you put it that way, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, is that there were people on the upside of the river pulling me up with, yeah. with, I was swimming, but they were pulling. And so I didn't do it alone. No. Well, no, no, we never do, right? We never do. So let's talk about one of those people. Let's just begin with Betsy and the McDonald's parking lot. Oh my gosh. So, you know, I think of that every day. Every day? Every day. Well, it's one of those defining moments where you know your life changed completely. And, you know, I said this in my commencement speech to Syracuse, which was my first time really ever revealing it to a, to a larger place. 
I was at first completely put off by her because she was saying, you have to bloom where you're planted. And that to me was like, why aren't you rescuing me? But she changed my mindset and that changed my path. So who's Betsy? So Betsy is this wonderful woman who was in her 30s when she took me under her wing. And you were like 15? 15. Can you believe that? I think about myself at 30 and wonder if I would have had that capacity or I did have that capacity, but here she was. Yeah. And she just takes me under her wing. She's someone who knows a, the guidance counselor at my school. She, they're friends. This is after you dropped out of high this school? This is right when I was dropping out. So I'm getting, I'm dropping out. I, I did drop out and the guidance counselor knows this isn't going to be really great for me and knows I need somebody to talk to. So she says, would you like to meet my friend Betsy? And I did. And changed my life. Betsy said that to you, which you, you elaborated on a lot in your Syracuse commencement speech, which was beautiful. But she said to you, bloom where you're planted. And my interpretation of that was, don't feel sorry for yourself. Do what you can with what you have. It was. In fact, she, she said right before that something that, you know, I asked her, why did you say that to me? She said, you're not promised a rose garden. You know, you <sighs> don't get promised this beautiful garden where you thrive and bloom, but that doesn't mean you can't bloom. And it was a little bit of don't feel sorry for yourself, but it was mostly, I've talked to her so many times about this, it was mostly don't let where your seed falls be the determining factor in how you, you, you look, how you bloom. And that was meaningful to me. Where had your seed fallen? You're, you're 15 years old, hard point for anyone, we've all been through it, but you're clearly intelligent, yet you're dropping out of high school. Why? Well, my family really, you know, I've said this in different ways, but here's the, the way that is most meaningful to me is that we were always a little bit close to the bone, if you will. That's how we would say it in the Midwest. And so that we're just one event. Yeah from falling through it and really being in a more chaotic situation. And we had several events, you know, health shock, job shock, uh, financial shock, and then suddenly you're, you're through, you've fallen through. And when that happens to any family, especially when you're young, then you're only worrying about that thing. How do we help everybody help raise up this, this issue so that we can be, it's more of a survival mode. Mm -hmm. And especially when you're 15, which I was, and my siblings are all younger, we were focused on trying to just go day to day. So school seemed a distant and uninteresting part of life. So something happened where your family fell through the cracks. What, what were your parents like during that time? They were busy trying to make sure they didn't, we didn't fall farther. And so distracted by the fact that we were falling through and they're trying to figure it out. Yeah. And that leaves us trying to figure it out. And in the end, you know, I've thought about this so many times. How do people find themselves in these situations? And why don't people kind of rally together as opposed to move apart and try to scramble? And I think it's just human nature. You know, everybody's trying to do their very best. And when you look back on it, that's what people did. And my very best was to drop out of school and work and try to give money back to my family, but also try to have some structure where I felt maybe I could get out of the situation we were in faster. This was in Missouri? In Missouri. Where specifically? Baldwin, Missouri. Baldwin, Missouri. And at one point you were working at a donut shop icing donuts, your grandparents? Please? My grandparents Delivering had a donut them? shop and I would deliver an iced donuts and then I worked because I had this donut experience, I got hired on other donut shops and yeah, so I was really good at making donuts. I have no fingertips. <laughs> and some other things. I have no fingertips to left. Because Well, because you know, you just, they become immune to heat, so. So you could have gone that route and you could have been a bus driver. I could have been. Like you thought you were gonna be. Exactly. But then Betsy came along. Right sort of a guardian angel. You've said, I, I thank you can never, is never going to be enough. Never going to be enough. And $216 that changed your life. Why? So I, she had nudged me to get a GED and I did. And then she had nudged me to take a first semester of college. And with quite a bit of shame, even as comfortable as I was with Betsy, I was still always ashamed that I didn't have more or that I couldn't do more. And so I couldn't afford it. And I said, well, I, I will go, but I can't afford it. And she wrote the check. $216. And what was that the cost of? That whole semester of wow. classes. Well, that's Everything. a whole other issue now in terms of college affordability, which we'll get to. But it's just a reminder that, you know, to me and everything I do, that one check, one small amount to a person can change everything for another person.
you've said people often sort of put my life in a nutshell, GED to PhD to CEO, right? CEO and president of the San Francisco Fed. But I'm interested in what is beneath that and why you succeeded, where the resilience came from, because I'm not so sure that I would have taken your path. I didn't have the obstacles you had. I had challenges. Everyone has their own, but I just, it takes some intestinal fortitude to be as resilient as you were and to not choose the other path. So why? You know, part of it is I just got a draw on resiliency, and I think that is true, that people get good draws, and my commitment was to use it to the best of my ability. Mm. And then, and this is the this is what drives me, you know, think about what, what's underneath. What's underneath is that I recognize I got a good draw, and now I'm going to try to make it so that you don't have to have a good draw to do what I did. If we could scale me, <laughs> wouldn't that be amazing that, that yeah. you don't read the paper and you think, wow, that's unusual. You read the paper and think that's everyday material. Right. Well, we'd have to give people pathways. We can't just let it be good luck of a good draw. Because if you're comfortable speaking about your family now and your siblings, I mean, m many of them did not choose the path that you did. and did not have that draw on resilience and struggled more than you did. Well, you know, everybody makes their way, and I saw that, that that was it. That was a difference in a draw. And they've done well for themselves. They have lived, they're living productive and happy lives. But I, that difference that allowed me to escape, yeah. I want to repeat that escape velocity for others and so that everybody has a chance to do that if they want. Escape velocity. I had heard escape you say velocity. This before. What is escape velocity? So escape velocity, you know, if you're blasting off to the moon, you need enough momentum, you need enough velocity sure. to escape the atmosphere. So if you think of the context we all grow up in, an environment you grew up in, you often need enough velocity, enough momentum, enough oomph to actually break free from that and then decide how you want to live. And I got escape velocity. Despite sort of having all of these odds stacked against you, and you, you like to say I'm four foot 11 on a good day, <laughs> female from a lower socioeconomic status, so I've never felt like I was in the majority. You've always sort of been this unicorn. Yeah, I've always been feeling like I wasn't in the majority and maybe I didn't belong. And the hardest part of that was I then told myself a story, if you will. And I mentioned this in the Syracuse commencement speech that one of the biggest thing I had to learn yeah. is that I do belong. And I wasn't the person keeping me out mm -hmm. after so many years. I mean, they weren't. They weren't the person keeping me out. I was. You were keeping you out. I was keeping myself out because I had the sense of, well, I don't belong because I don't belong here. Sure. I mean, I'm a, I'm a series of box-checking exercises. Well, imposter syndrome, right? right. We all, I've certainly had it. Everybody has it. Women I mean, especially. The, women especially have it, and I work with a lot of um, minorities, yes. people of color. They have it. Mm -hmm. uh, all of my students and, and people who, they, everybody feels like maybe it isn't enough. So I had these yeah. Berkeley economic students of color in my office the other day, and they were all standing around my office and looking at my bookshelves. And I asked them, why were they so excited? And they said, well, maybe if you belong, I belong, and you look like you moved in, right? One woman said, you're confident you moved in. Yeah. <laughs> and so that is a sense of belonging, and sure. it was me stepping over a threshold of saying, I'm not an imposter, yeah. and I do belong I here. I am meant to be here. Yeah, I be need to be here. Because this wasn't just, you know, how you felt when you were just a recent high school dropout. Even when you went to college, as I understand it, you felt like you were drowning. Yes. And you didn't fit in. I was drowning, honestly, because I was over I was overwhelmed. I mean, one of the things that I always go back to, I work a lot with first gens. I really lo love that I'm a first gen. And one of the things people think about first gens is that they drop out because they can't afford it. First generation to go to college. First generation to yep. go to college. That they can't drop out because they can't afford it. And sure there are financial difficulties, but you know why many of them drop out mm. is because they face the same things I faced in the first semester. You get there and you've just left your family yeah. to do this thing that nobody really expects of you. 
and then you go to do it right. and you don't fit in and you worry that boy I don't belong anywhere anymore and it was for me it was and, and I'm sure a little guilt like I could be home making money I for could my be family home. absolutely I felt guilty I felt ashamed so I re hit this point where I'm literally drowning I'm failing it's mid semester you're failing you got bad grades at first oh yeah I totally failed I didn't I was oh, wow. so over my head and so how does this happen so then I I, I remember this point I said okay and I talked to myself, Mary, you have two choices. You can go home and be ashamed in front of Betsy yeah. that you didn't, you weren't able to complete, or you can be ashamed to walk into the learning center and ask for help. Right. And then the, my big fear was they were gonna say, I told you, you don't belong here. Oh, wow. So I did it. And- No one said that. And no one said that. They embraced me. People, and that's what I mean, and it took me years after that, decades really, to learn that that learning center experience is really the experience that you can have in life. That, yeah, there are gonna be people who say you can't, but there are gonna be a lot more people who say you can. Okay. But you have to ask. And I'll help you. And I'll well, help you. I think this goes to, and I actually heard Mark Benioff sitting in that chair, Salesforce founder and CEO, man, six foot tall, six and a half foot tall man, right? Also talked to me about the importance of vulnerability. Right. Right. And for you, that has really been core to your being and your success, the power of being vulnerable. I think it's probably the most important thing we can do. You know, I, really? I well, it has so many capacities. If I'm vulnerable, then people can see in me something they have and they can say, well, it, you can be in this successful position and still be vulnerable. And if they feel vulnerable, they see a path up. But you know, it's actually how I hired my speechwriter. Yeah. I had, can uh, vulnerability be strong written on my board? And she came to interview and everybody really wanted her so that I get to interview her and I'm like, I'm the closer. And she looks at that and she says, what is this? Can vulnerability be strong? And I said, well, I want to write a speech about that because I believe it. And she accepted our offer. There you go. So How it has a lot speech? of good things. Did she write a speech about vulnerability? We are going to South by Southwest. Oh, We've just great. been uh, told we're, we, we got in, and that's the speech we're going to give. That's we're great. going to talk about public servants and the importance mm. of being vulnerable. So Janet Yellen. We all know Jenny. Yellen you can see now. every time you see say someone's name like that, I my, I write up. You right? you do light up. I do. I light up because there have been these amazing people in your life uh, and amazing women in particular. She, of course, ran the San Francisco Fed before you. What what did she see in you that perhaps even you didn't see working your way up there? Oh my gosh, I wonder about that a lot. Um, it's interesting. She saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. You're right about that. And I wondered about it, so I finally just asked her. And I said, what did you see? And she said, I see this capacity, and this is what I admired in her, so the fact that she would say this to me, I mean, honestly, I remember the moment we were sitting at a table at a diner, and she said, I, I was actually telling her, Janet, when you walk into a room, you can both give your talk yeah. and see all the people in this room. So this unique ability to be intellectually like a force and then think about the individual so that we don't lose sight. And she said, that's what I saw in you. Mm. You, have, you would have the capacity, and I'm, I'm still like trying to take that in, but you would have the capacity to hold an intellectual mm -hmm. idea, but not have it displace the people who it's meant to serve. Next, is the American dream alive and well? I ask Mary Daly. Stay tuned. Let's talk about inequality because it has been such a formative part of your life and it is such an important part of American society and such a sad reality, in my opinion, that, it, that it, there are some readings that show inequality is getting a little bit better and there are other readings that show that it's getting worse. What we do know is that it exists and that where you're born and your zip code is fundamental in terms of being a block to, to for many in terms of how much they can succeed, thus zip code economies in your great podcast. So very basically, but importantly, is the American dream not only alive, but is it, is it well today? Well, I would say it's alive. And, and so think about what the American dream really is. It's a, a sense that we can. Yeah. That's what it is. It's something we hold dear. But the way I like to think about it, the way I do think about it is, does the dream match the data? And that's how I would evaluate if it's, uh, if it's really living in the way we want. And the data have fallen short. There's just no doubt about it. It doesn't mean we can't find examples. Right. I mean, I'm an example. Sure. I'm an example of a data point. 
But I said this earlier, if we don't scale me, then we only have a few data points and they become our, like, what we can be, but we should have this. And so the data, the, the data don't back up the dream. I think the dream is alive and we want to keep it that way, but that means we have to deliver on our promises. The president talks repeatedly about this being the best economy. Is this a truly great economy for enough people? This is a really good economy. Let's think about the economy. This is a really good economy. We have an unemployment rate that's at a 60-year low. We've had the longest expansion in recorded history in the U.S. These are good things. And importantly, this is a metric I would use and I do use. In my research, I look at have we, try, have we started to close some of the gaps that exist yeah. between those who are less advantaged, those who are more advantaged. And we have. So the strong economy that we've had for so many uh, years is closing those gaps a little bit. And if you back up from those small data yeah. points, you see the gaps still are pretty large. And that's it's, the data you're talking about. And that's about. the data I'm talking about. So yes, we're making improvements, right. but the gaps are still big. So it sounds like you'd fall in the camp of not not great for enough people. Not great for enough people. Okay. But it's not just the economy, right? The economy could be running very strong, and we no. have structural gaps, Fun and we have to solve yes. those, fundamental gaps, access to education. Okay, so access to education. One of the solutions on the table now for that, potential solutions, we hear it from some of the Democrats running for president, is free college for everyone. Does that solve it? Can America afford it? So those are really deep questions that policymakers, I think, should be taking up. The way I would, um, I'm not a policymaker in that space, I'm a monetary policymaker, but when I speak about education or any part of our social contract, sure. what I say and what I believe in is it's time to rethink it. Yeah. It's time to open the whole thing up. You said we need to revisit our social contract. We do, we need to revisit our social contract and ask, the world has changed. I mean, we're a global economy now. We are not the same economy that we were when the original social contracts were put into place. And we need to rethink those and ask questions like these. How do we best share risk across all members of our society? How do we help lift everyone up so that we can all be better? And importantly, how do we make sure that we're prepared the economy so that the future generations are inheriting something better than what sure. we, we, we sure. get. Because right now I'm not sure we're doing that. You're not? I'm not. What scares you on that front? What keeps you up at night? Well, what scares me on that front is that we don't have enough access to things that allow people to be them, their best selves. And so that means that we're going to limit our growth potential in the U.S. You know, I gave a, a speech in, the, in L.A. about this, about redefining our speed limit, basically, in the United States by ensuring that we can equalize educational attainment so we can get more people working and more people productively in jobs that are in highest demand. So those are, that worries me because we'll resign ourselves to a, a future of slow growth if we don't activate all these individuals and give them opportunities. Another thing that worries me is that we're not being serious enough about our infrastructure and our natural resources and all the things that I think when I was growing up, you know, we had a really great infrastructure system in the United States mm -hmm. and we went to national parks and all kinds of things and we, we were really focused on the fact that we had all these resources, but we are stewards of those resources mm -hmm. and I feel like we can and, and really should continue to make investments in them so that we're passing that along to future generations. I brought up Mark Benioff a few minutes ago, and I'd love for you to comment on something he said to me, which is, here's this billionaire, right? Entrepreneurial huge success. And in his mind, he told me capitalism is dead. Is it? You know, I think of it differently. I mean, I, I've heard him talk about that, and it's, it's actually sure, quite compelling. San Francisco Nights. Right, so, exactly. You, how do you say it? Uh, San Francisco. I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> I, so when I can't pronounce well, words, there, I just so don't you say have them. No I just say I'm from San Francisco, <laughs> but uh, someone would probably call us a San Francisco Nista or something okay. like that. You All know, right, I don't know. We'll make up new words. There you go. But one of the things that I think he's pointing to, and others have pointed to, using different language, is that the it's not that different than I my saying we need to revisit our social contract. Right. People are basically asking this question. What do we need to do so that public sector, private sector, and the not-for-profit sector, if you will, so local governments, federal yeah. government, pr private companies, and the not-for-profit groups all work together 
all swim in the same direction, in the same lane to do the best work. Right now we're not collaborating. And I think that's what my understanding of what he's talking about is yeah. we need a different contract. Well, he's also saying that Milton Friedman was wrong. That the business of business is not just business. Well, I think what the he my interpretation of what he's saying, what a lot of people are saying is, and and we I see this actually. Let me go back to leadership in the in the Federal Reserve or in the Federal Reserve sure. system or my bank. We're talking about collaboration, and collaboration isn't a model where business does their work, right. private public sector does right. their work, and then we put it together. We hope that the sum of our parts is bigger than each one. Right. What collaboration is, is we're actually sharing the best ideas, everybody around the table. And that's a different way to do things, a better way. Capitalism worked for you, but you're an outlier, right? Like most people who had your story early on have not had the success that you've had, right? And I think when you look at some of the numbers on the polling over capitalism versus socialism, and we can debate you know, the understanding of socialism by everyone and how they would define it when answering this. But Gallup found last year more Democrats view socialism favorably than view capitalism favorably. Does that worry you? And, and why do you think it is? So here's a little known fact about me. So I got my undergraduate training at University of Missouri, Kansas City. And it's the home of, um, I was taught by uh, a couple of my professors were Marxists, a couple were institutionalists, some were socialists, one was a capitalist. And what I learned from all of these yes. is that these are just systems trying to arrange how we exchange resources and how we ensure our population. Right. So they're not, they're just different ways of trying to achieve the same goal. And so when you ask, why do people want to go from one, from one to another, my answer is always because the system we have isn't giving them the thing that they that need. They need. Yeah. And so I want to go back in. It's one of the reasons I did Zip Code Economies. What is it that people need, mm -hmm. and how do they go about doing it at the community level, and can we scale that? Can you talk about that in the context of East Palo Alto, where you did a beautiful episode? Sure. So we go to East Palo Alto in part in large part because you know it's 2.2 or 2.6 depending on who you're talking to square miles surrounded by Facebook and Google and other tech giants and IKEA's right there and so you know these they just seem small and how do they survive and when you talk to economists the interesting thing is they say oh they're poorly run they can't make it they've been terrible for two three decades and when you go visit you don't see any of that what you see is that far from being terrible, mm -hmm. they have figured out how to make things work with very few resources. And what I say in the podcast is really what you see when you talk to these individuals. They do it with a sense of community. Like the pastor. Yeah, like Pastor Baines. Pastor Baines, who he doesn't know this yet, but we're about to, my partner and I, Shelly, my wife and I are about to celebrate our 30 year anniversary. Congratulations. And we want to do a recommitment ceremony and I want and Pastor Baines. And is he gonna Baines, do it? Well, I'm gonna ask him. I'm going to hope he does it. Send him this podcast and see and if he listens see if far listens. enough in to hear this. Yeah, because I really would like him to do it, and why? But why would I choose yeah. him? You right. know why? It's because he embodies the very thing that I want to be, which mm. is he, he loves everybody, but he does hold them accountable. Right. Because people th often think, well, if you have unconditional love, it means you have no conditions. But yeah. it doesn't. No. And he, he said we hold people accountable. And we love them when they fail, and then we hold them accountable again. So one of the lessons it sounds like you learned from East Palo Alto, for example, as an economist who relies largely or has relied largely on data in the past, that data does not the whole it's story It's not the whole tell. story. Exactly. And you said that beautifully. The data does not the whole story tell. Because why? Well, the data give us a lot of insights into what to ask but you actually don't know how people think about their own lives until you speak to them. So I'm a kid who has no prospects, right? And somebody sees something in me, but they don't see anything in me unless they actually talk to me. So I learned then, but only relearned recently in Zip Code Economies, that what Betsy really did, what all the people around me really did, is they stopped thinking about me as a statistic mm. and they started thinking about me as a person. Mm. And that's what it does. When you just look at statistics, you have a two-dimensional picture. Sure. The three dimensions come out only when you speak to somebody. If you had your druthers, and you could make some big decisions, but if you could make all of the big decisions on this front, what is it that you think would help narrow the inequality gap and broaden the opportunity 
you know, trajectory for the most people right now. What is that? Maybe it's a public-private partnership. Warren Buffett talks a lot about the earned income tax credit and expanding that. I mean, what is it? There's universal basic income is being discussed. What could be done that would help the most people that need a shot? Well, here I'm really guided by my research, come up a couple with my experience. So I'm going to give a two-part answer to this. So on the research front, what I've learned time and time again in all the work I've ever done is that education really matters and that work really matters. Having people in work gives them a sense of structure and purpose and helps them... Dignity. It gives them dignity, exactly. It gives them dignity. And in order for people to get and keep work, they need to be educated. We need to think they're capable of more than they think they're capable of. Mm -hmm. So this is, so the education is my, uh, is a top priority for me. And it's why we have, we're putting a lot of effort in this first gen program that we're running out of the San Francisco Fed because we want to lift up these individuals and get them in. And the earned income trap credit, tax credit. I'm a big proponent of that, of course, because in research it shows. Expanding it. Expanding it. It shows that it really it really does help families in a way because it says if you work, we're going to make sure that you uh, have enough to have a livable wage. And that's important. The And this is where the data doesn't tell the whole story. So those are policies that we could take up, more educational attainment. But what we're going to need to do isn't just give more resources to those things only, we're going to need to tell people that we need them, that we want them, that they're important to our well-being going forward. Because if we don't, then it's going to be hard for them to jump that hurdle. We started off by saying, how do you get escape velocity? Yeah. Well, you get escape velocity by someone giving you an opportunity and then telling them you yeah. want them to take it. Right. And that's what we need, both right. things. There, There's discussion right now about, let's just take like America's corporations, for example. One of the proposals out there, Senator Elizabeth Warren, talks about what she calls accountable capitalism. And she and Bernie Sanders have talked about, for Elizabeth Warren, it's 40% of a company's board of directors should be elected by the employees. And I'm not going to ask you because I know you're not going to tell me if you support a candidate's policy or not. But you know what the thinking around that is. Do you think that America would benefit, more Americans would benefit from more representation in C-suites, on corporate boards, like, is there just a, a divide of like, you don't even know where I'm coming from? So here's here's how I think about it. This is what I'm a proponent of. Like, I'm a true believer that policy is, in economic speak, we'd say policy is endogenous to the people who make it. In simple language, it re, policy reflects those who sit around the table and have a voice. So I am a fierce proponent of diversity, of course, mm-hmm. but more importantly, way more importantly, inclusion. You gotta have a voice. It's not enough to decorate the table with different kinds of people. So that's a yes, well, but how do we get there is the it's question. A, it's a yes to this idea, but I don't think, I reason I, you know, I say this and then people say yes, but, and what I wanna say is yes and, because I really want to think about this first point. If we all made a commitment mm-hmm. to be more inclusive, mm-hmm. then we would actually get outcomes that we would like with less mm-hmm. rules and regulations. But I don't think we've made that commitment. But I wonder if perhaps quotas, we've seen Europe use quotas for gender diversity on boards. You've said there's a diversity crisis in economics, period. There is. Um, are quotas part of the answer? Because I don't think, Mary, from just what I know about you, that you would be the leader you are at the San Francisco Fed if you were born with a proverbial silver spoon in your mouth. But you came from somewhere different in a different way. Oh, completely. And so you go to East Palo Alto and you do this podcast. No, I totally agree. But here's the thing with quotas and all these solutions that are being proposed that I think is short of what we are trying to accomplish. It will accomplish, if, if people chose to take that up, diversity, but it doesn't do anything for inclusion. So I'm actually trying to change the conversation. Okay. I'm actually trying to change the conversation. If we, if we talk to people, companies, when I go to talk to companies about diversity, I don't talk about you need to do it because it's fair. I talk to them about you need to do it because it's valuable. We have to to change the equation so it's the value proposition is diversity of thought matters. And that's what I mean by inclusion. And so the policies I would propose are much more along the lines of trying to find ways to source different voices and then show in the bottom lines of the public sector, private companies, that the value has just gone up. 
Um, would you say, looking at the data and what the data tell you, that socioeconomic inequality has increased or declined in the last three years under President Trump? Do we know? So the thing we know about inequality is it is largely driven by structural factors. And those outlive any particular uh, government or any monetary policymaker or any institutional head. They're just things that are driving the economy because they're there. And those would be, if you take inequality, it comes back to education and access to work. And geographic, if you can look at rural-urban divides, those have been getting worse over decades, not over three or five years. So being a student But of, progressively getting worse. Well, over the decade, over the decades, getting worse. And then when you have a strong economy, they get a little bit better, but they don't close. Mm. And so what I I think the important conversation to have in the U.S. is not have they gotten better or worse in the last couple of years, yes. but how have they progressed over the entire series of decades? So if you look at the civil rights movement, for instance, I have a, a paper on this. If you look at the civil rights movement and you see the black white wage gap. We haven't made much progress no. in decades. Huge. And so that's a question that it has nothing to do with a particular person in office. It has to do with our so society mm -hmm. and what we're asking of ourselves. What about Silicon Valley? I mean, you're in San Francisco, right? And so I am. you see it. I walking around San Francisco, a city I love, I am devastated by the hom homeless crisis. Um, uh, we're, we have a crisis. It's a, a complete crisis. Their Prop C, you know, passed. We'll see it sort of in the courts now what, what, what that means. But has San Francisco, has Silicon Valley rather um, exacerbated the inequality crisis in San Francisco? And if so, what is there a responsibility? So I think we all have a responsibility, but let me add something to this discussion that, that I don't think people really know. I travel all over the United States, and what I've learned in doing that mm -hmm. is homeless crisis isn't just in San Francisco. It's not just because we have tech firms in San Francisco. You can go to rural areas and where there was not homeless people before, they're now in tent encampments. You can find them just about anywhere in the United States. Why? Why? What do you, why? Yeah. I, I own, my own sense is that what's happened is after the financial crisis, the devastation that so many families had, they lost their homes. And then we were slow to build more housing. We're slow to understand that the value proposition of creating jobs is you have to have housing. And one of the things that we learn when we do our Fed Listens events is we had one in San Francisco and we had people who, I asked them, is a hot economy universally beneficial? Yeah. A strong economy? And what they say? No. No. It's great for jobs, yeah. it's terrible for housing, right? So sure. it's a, so you definitely want a strong economy, but when this economy gets overheated and gets out of sync, then it can be hard to have people have the homes they need. I think there's a real debate now over the value of a four-year college education in this economy, in looking at AI, looking at sort of what the jobs of the future you are a stickler on this. And I it, am. And, and you believe there is no question here. There is no debate to have. Make your case. Okay. So I'm going to say it in two ways because the debate is I am fierce on this. So the first thing I did, um, I have three things. The economist always likes three things. So let me start with the first thing. The first thing I did is I looked at the data. Yeah. And if you look at the data, the the escape velocity we talked about, yeah. that's achieved through education. So if you look at the student the kids born into the bottom quintile of the US income distribution their chances of moving up if they don't get a college degree are close to nothing less than 10% if they get a college degree they look like everybody else the travesty or the tragedy is that fewer than 10% or less than 10% get college degrees so that's just telling you it's a it's it's really a barrier the second piece of information is that the only people i've ever talked to who tell me that a four-year degree isn't right for some people are living in better neighborhoods. The people who are in low-income neighborhoods, they never tell me that, ever. They tell me that's their ticket, that's the way. So I take what I hear from the people who are experiencing it mm -hmm. pretty seriously. Yeah. And then the third thing is, in a world where we could deliver uh, a continuum of education and we had apprenticeships and we had all types of, of things that allowed people to be flexible in their lives, then absolutely that we could have more opportunities, but we don't have that system. So I think we should help kids get a four-year degree now and work to build a better system so that their kids have different opportunities. Should college cost as much as it does? 
The, the thing about that that I think is underknown is that for most low-income kids, college isn't, the ticket price and the actual price are different. Right. What I think should happen, and what I really feel is important, is that low-income kids understand that there are lots of ways to go to college that don't cost the sticker price. Right. And so that's the piece that, you know, policymakers other than myself are going to figure out if tuition should be less expensive. But what I'm going to figure out is how to get the kids who could go if they knew that they could go into Just the college. Just to apply. Just to apply. To Just to apply and go. So you brought up the, the financial crisis a moment ago, and I'd like to talk about that for a moment because no woman still is running a big Wall Street bank, still. Earlier this year... Um, the world is slow to change. Yes, it is. Congressman Al Green <laughs> from Texas um, asked in a House Financial Services hearing, it was all the big bankers, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Wells, you name it. And one of the questions he asked them, he said, raise your hand if you believe your successor will be a woman or a person of color. And no one raised their hand. Do you remember that moment? And what did you think? I thought we have more work to do. And the work we need to do is to take that feeling that I think many people have, male and female, people of color, people not of color, when you hear that, and you think that that's not a reflection of who we are as a nation. We don't look like that. We look different than that. And take that, that feeling, mm -hmm. and then say, where do we start? And we're going to have to start way back. And actually, high school, college, when a person comes into the organization, mm -hmm. and we're going to have to mentor them and help them have career mobility all the way up. Because if we're just waiting for those unicorns to have pushed through and somehow made it despite yeah. all the odds, then we're going to wait a long time, and we don't have time to wait. Because, as you know, Christine Lagarde, former IMF chair, she's now going to, to head the ECB, said, quote, if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Sisters, today's economic crisis clearly would look quite differently. Why? She makes the case that, in her words, female leaders of the big banks would have been more prudent, less inclined to the kinds of reckless decision-making that provoked the crisis. Is she right? You know, I won't comment on whether she's right or wrong, but here's what I'll say. I have a lot of humility now, and in, in, I, I do in general, but in this job, I've really learned that that's a, a virtue. And the humility I have is that it isn't if women were in the role or if African-Americans were in the role. It's We can't actually rely on a single group. No matter I think what she's that group saying is. If more women were there. Well, I, I think what she's really saying, I mean, I haven't talked with her about it, but here's what I, I just read a lot of her work, and let me not say what I think she's saying. Here's how I interpret it. Okay. Here's what I believe in. Okay. I believe that you need men, women, mm -hmm. people of color, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, people from different geographies, people from rural areas, people living in the Midwest, people living on the coast. You can't make best policy unless you have all of those people and all of those people collaboratively trying to figure it out together because we all will have blind spots. And what I want us to avoid, mm -hmm. really avoid, is being tribal. And so now if my tribe's in, okay, I'm going to yeah. advocate for my group. Right. It's really about putting down our, our arms and saying, let's get as many different people around the table as possible mm -hmm. and then working collaboratively. Now, people say I'm completely crazy optimistic, but that's, I think, what it's going to take. Well, given that, most of your peers are not only men, they're men with Ivy League degrees. Is that a good thing for America? As long as they listen, it's not a burden. So I think but, I there's mean, a don't difference. You need even more diversity around the table. You do need more diversity, but in but that's a process. So absolutely, I'm a proponent of diversity, as you know. Yeah. But you don't have to. We don't have to wait mm -hmm. to have complete representation to be influential and effective. It takes two things. It takes people like myself and all the others being willing to raise their hand. Mm -hmm. And it takes people around the table who don't look like us being willing to listen. And so I think people are listening more than we know, but we have to give them opportunities to say that. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with being heard around the table? Because sure. many very successful women, female CEOs, have talked about being asked to get coffee 
for the group have you know not even in the Obama White House there's a you know the now famous story about how women would have to repeat what the other woman sitting next to them at the table said to elevate each other's voices to really be heard have you been discriminated against because you're a woman or have you been heard always no, not heard always. And, you know, I gave this uh, speech at the Bank of England, and it was a real kind of coming kind of out moment for me on this topic, but because I thought a lot about what to say. So I've never, luckily, fortunately, to my knowledge, been told you can't do this or you shouldn't do this mm -hmm. because you're a woman. Mm -hmm. But I have, in so many different situations, been uh, what I call death by a thousand cuts. Wow. And so what does death by a thousand cuts look like? It looks like um, having to have someone else repeat it before it's heard. It has to do with when someone gave, I gave the, what the example I use regularly is when I was especially younger, and it even happens now, I show up and I'm a surprising good speaker. They're surprised. Why? And, well, that's right. Why? <laughs> and so, oh, I didn't see that coming is not an atypical oh remark. Goodness. Now, less of less now? less of less so now because people have seen me enough, but when I was first coming out and doing economics presentations, I remember this event. I gave a presentation and the person who was a pretty senior in our organization comes up and slaps me on the back and says, "I didn't see that coming. You're such a little lady." And it was oh an example of his his mindset. Now, the good news <laughs> In, if there's good news, is I blew his mind. And maybe he won't see there another woman th that way. But this, can, this is what I mean by death by a thousand cuts. And those things wear people down sure. over time. And that's what we need to change. But I do think, because I've lived it in my career early on, there's a value in being underestimated. Oh yeah, there is. And so, what I, but I want to do, I don't know if you want to do this, I want to do this. So I took the value of being underestimated and I blew their minds. But now I want to pave an easier path of for the people coming behind me yeah. so that they can go and blow people's minds about something else. Because what if we, I mean, I, I know I'm getting kind of enthusiastic yeah. here, but what if we allowed people to use all the bandwidth I know you have spent and I'm spending trying to figure out how to blow their minds. What if we let it be for good ideas as right, opposed it's to- exhausting. It's exhausting. Yeah. And, it, and it means that some of the best ideas don't have time to percolate it's because we're too, too much worrying by getting at the table. Coming up, Mary Daly says a recession is not around the corner and America's economy has, quote, more room to run. Before we move on to the economy, Rekha, I'd like to ask you about something. I was struck watching Jerome Powell's interview a few months ago on 60 Minutes when he brought up the opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. It's something I care deeply about. It is ravaging, especially the middle of this country where I'm from, where you're from. And he talked about a lost generation right? Uh, because of the opioid crisis, especially of young men. Right. How concerned are you about that? How does the Fed talk about that issue? We're concerned. I mean, the way we talk about it is if you go out on these Fed listens, this is, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Jay, uh, Chair Powell obviously um, reads and other things like that to, to know about this crisis, but he also hears the voices in Fed listens like we all do. And what you hear when you hear the voices in Fed listens is that these are real structural issues that keep young men from many times from going into the labor market. So they're lost because they're not getting the experience when they were younger and also they have a devastating addiction. So that's difficult for their families, difficult for the next generation and it is a crisis and we do need to do something about that. Have you guys calculated what the, I mean obviously there's a human toll that we've broadly reported on and it is heartbreaking to sit in the, I mean we've sat in basements in Ohio with parents sobbing who've lost their 20 year old of you know, star baseball player son to this and they didn't even know he'd ever taken a pill. Right. That's a hugely important side of it. Another important side is the economic toll it's going to sure. take on these families and towns and and the broader economy. Do we know? Have you guys calculated any of There are of that? some estimates out there. The, the trouble is that it's really difficult to pinpoint. Is it opioids? Is it, you know, some famous economist, uh, Angus Deaton, said this is not a um, cause of the problem, it's a symptom of the problem. And what he was referring to, and I think I'm attributing it to him correctly, but it was a, a well-known economist, the, what he was saying is that the root cause 
is lack of opportunity, mm -hmm. lack of ability to find your way in life sure. in the work, the labor market. And so we do have calculations of that. And if you think about all the men in what we call the prime age, 25 to 54, who aren't working, and all the people who, if we just got a labor force participation rate that looked like Canada, what we would look like, if yeah. we did men and women together, we would add about a half percentage point to wow. our growth rate. So that's wow. a pretty big toll. All right, let's talk about the Fed and rate cuts and decisions. You said in October the economy continues to expand at a, at a solid pace. You just laid out how strong you think the economy is. Was this additional rate cut that we just saw necessary? In my judgment, yes. I was supportive um, of all three rate cuts we took mm -hmm. because we want to get the level of accommodation correct so that we can continue to sustain the expansion to achieve our, our congressionally mandated goals. Are you at all concerned that continued rate cuts just everyone weakens the ammunition that you guys have, sort of in the tool chest, to toolbox to fight back if there's a deep recession? No, I heard that a lot, but yeah. all the research tells us, and research we did in the United States after the crisis, but also across countries who have had too many opportunities to, to practice in this space, every piece of research you read tells you the same thing, that using your ammunition to avoid the zero lower bound. I mean, we often say you want to avoid the ditch as opposed to dig out of it. And this is an example of you don't want to get to the zero lower bound. Right. You actually want to stay away from it. So supporting the economy to stay away from that point is actually the best practice of our of our profession. So the question comes to what end? And I'm obviously pointing to negative interest rates because the president, as you know, has suggested the Federal Reserve should join Europe, should join Japan, drop interest rates into negative territory. He tweeted last week, we should have lower interest rates than Germany, Japan, and all others. Have negative interest rates worked in Europe and Japan? Is that a, is that a good idea? Well, I want to just back up from the specific of negative interest rates and just talk about, you know, policy being appropriate. So it is a good time to say that, you know, the Fed is completely independent and we take our decisions by thinking about what's best for the American people and can we achieve our dual mandate goals that Congress gave us. So we, we look at that and we calibrate policy. Mm -hmm. And we have said publicly as an institution, and I um, completely believe this, that the, the interest rate is our primary tool, the in federal funds rate. But then after, if should we hit a large shock? in the United States, which we are right. not in right, right now by any means, then we would also use tools like forward guidance, telling people how long mm -hmm. we expect the interest rate to be low. Mm -hmm. And you see some of that in our summary of economic projections, where you don't see further uh, rate cuts coming in, in the future or further rate increases. So those are the ways we do so, these so, things. So your, it sounds like that's your answer to, can you foresee a scenario where the Fed drops into negative rates? So negative interest rates are certainly something that we all are looking at. And Europe's experimenting with them now and Japan has experimented with them. The results in Japan have been uh, less helpful than, in, in, than they seem to be in Europe, but these are early days of evaluating. The important thing about this is that those are things that are in the part of your toolkit yep. that you use when you run out of other tools. Right. And we They're saying we're not out of other We're not out of other tools. And importantly, in the financial crisis, the committee, which I was not on, mm -hmm. decided negative interest rate wasn't going to be appropriate for the United States, largely because our financial system looks a lot different than Europe's. A ever? Well, appropriate? No, you never say never when you're in situations. What they said then was it wasn't appropriate right. for the time period they were studying. I guess I just asked it, to put a button on it and we will move on, but Kevin Hassett, former you know, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors at the Trump White House told me negative interest rates are a bad idea. People have a lot of views about negative interest rates. Here's, in, here's where I'm, my thinking is, so I'd, instead of talking about other people, I'd rather just talk about where I am. Where I am on negative interest rates is that we don't know enough about the effects in the United States okay. to really know whether they would work or not. And in particular, negative interest rates are very hard on institutions like community banks that rely heavily on deposit taking. And so if you go interest rate negative, that really makes their profitability suffer. And since yeah. community banks are so important to the communities we serve, that is a pretty heavy lift in my mind. So you said something really important a few moments ago, many important things, but one of the things that struck me the Fed is independent. The president has called the Fed, quote, out of control, wrong, boneheads, no guts, no sense, no vision. Are you worried, Mary, about the independence of the Fed? No. The reason I'm not worried is because our independence has been longstanding since 1913. And 
we continue to walk through, I tell this story all the time because it's really meaningful. So the FOMC room is where we go to meet and that is, it's a big, it's, it's, it's a magnificent room. And when you cross the threshold, it's a, there's a certain reverence and you cross the threshold and you go in mm -hmm. and politics literally never come up. Ever. So you guys don't care what the president we don't talk says, about insulting it. the Fed? You don't talk about it? We don't ever talk about it. What we talk about, and it's the same every single time, we talk about our dual mandate goals, how, how we best achieve them. And for this, we look at the data. We talk to CEOs and community leaders. Mm -hmm. We're sourcing information from all over the country. We have the, we have loads of staff thinking about it and doing analysis. We talk to private sector uh, analysis, people who do analysis. We talk to researchers. So we bring all of that work together and then we make the best decision that so we can. So to anyone who may be watching saying, well, I wonder if the Fed kept cutting rates because the president kept telling them to. No. The answer is no. It's unequivocal. I mean, there's just, it's just no. And to the president saying that the Fed is putting the U.S. economy at a competitive disadvantage? Our work is to calibrate monetary policy so that we can achieve the dual mandate goals. And so that's a narrow, it's a narrow mandate. And we have one instrument and two goals, price stability and full employment, and we take that very seriously. But it's a narrow mandate. Our job is to ensure that we have a sustainable, healthy economy to achieve those goals. So you say when he says others are running circles around them and laughing all the way to the bank, you say not the case? I say that we are doing our part to ensure that the American economy continues to be on this trajectory, and that's our job. So what is the biggest risk to the U.S. economy right now? Right now, I think the biggest risk is, will the mood uh, get ahead of the data? That's one. I, I really. You mean people are being too pessimistic. Well, will people become pessimistic either huh. because they they read the news and they see we have geopolitical risks and uncertainties. Brexit comes up a lot. Trade, uh, China, trade uncertainty. I know businesses in my district and across the country are really feeling like they want something to be settled so that yeah. they can go on with their business plans. It's not as much about how it's settled as about being settled. So that uncertainty wears people down. And then people just get a little bit worried simply because we've been expanding for a long for time. For so long. Yeah, and they, people have a misperception that if they could, if I could correct that, I'd be thrilled. Re uh, expansions don't die of old age. Well, there They're you not go. like people. But this is the longest economic expansion in American history. Which is terrific. And look and at how many people have been lifted up from it. Do you think it's got a lot more muscle? I do think we have more muscle. I think we have more room to run. I think there are more people we can bring from the sidelines into the labor market. They can get into jobs and, and get skills and training and experience. Mm -hmm. I think we have yet achieved our inflation mandate. And so, mm -hmm. so we, that gives us an opportunity, one, to achieve it, but two, to let's, I wanna find, uh, this is what I, 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 I've come to, I wanna find what full employment means experientially is rather than guessing. I want to find it by seeing it in wage and price inflation. What about corporate debt? Jay Powell has, has you know, talked about the fact, and we see it in the numbers, that corporate debt is elevated. How concerned are you about that debt pile up in the case of a, of a downturn? So certainly when this debt is as high as it is, yeah. then it has a potential to amplify any downturn we have because there's more of a pullback. That's just the way that this works. But we take on eight times a year, four times a year, we put this out publicly, we're just about to release it, a financial stability report. Mm -hmm. And in that financial stability report, we look at all types of risks to the economy and the financial sector. And then we judge whether or not we're in a place of fragility and right now, we are not. So banks are well capitalized mm -hmm. and have sufficient buffers to absorb shocks. These uh, corporate, uh, these firms that are more leveraged, I do have my eye on them. Mm -hmm. But right now, it's not ringing alarm bells. It's just something to watch. Are there certain ones you have your eye on? I'm watching the entire uh, the entire portfolio, and of all the things I see out there in the financial sector, you know, households are in remarkably good shape. They really did deleverage, and they've stayed healthy. Savings yeah. rate just went up a little bit, Consumer so that's a really good sector. Remains this strong point. It is a strong point, and I, you know, spending is is based yeah. on uh, do people have incomes that yeah. they see and that are going up, and do they feel their employment yeah. prospects are good? So then, what do you make of the manufacturing contraction? Three straight months now of manufacturing and factory contraction. 
Well, there's two things going on there that is really um, pushing on manufacturing and also business investment. One is slower global growth. Mm. I mean, I've put that at the top of the list. Mm. Other countries, which we export yep. to, especially in the manufacturing sector, are slowing, and this matters. And so they're feeling the effects directly. Mm -hmm. And then also trade uncertainty, which has caused some businesses, many businesses, to say, well, we're going to put on, uh, on hold some of these marginal projects and even pause on some of our investments. We thought we were going to be a good idea until this gets resolved so we know the lay of the land. What about the potential for a Midwest recession? When you look at the manufacturing numbers and you look at Pennsylvania manufacturing jobs down 9,000 there in the last year, you look at Wisconsin manufacturing jobs down 6,800 in the last year. So it's possible, it's very possible for, because like regional region, Well, regions have, their, they tend to have um, focused on a particular sector. So yeah. when the dot-com went up, then the 12th district, my district, was more affected than other districts in the United States. But right now, if you look over the the comments from the other regional Fed presidents who cover the Midwest, mm -hmm. they're not seeing that kind of recession. They're seeing a slowdown for sure. But in, in their written comments that you can see publicly, they're not calling a recession even in their area. So again, I want to be aware of those inf that information, but the data are better than some of the, the moods on okay. these things. A recession is not, in my judgment, right around the corner, but okay. we are mindful of the slowdown. Let's talk quickly before we wrap up about what the New York Fed has been doing and this liquidity injection that we've been seeing. Is this something really wrong or is this a plumbing issue? No, it's nothing really wrong. We said in January as an FOMC that we wanted to run an ample reserves regime. Right. And as we move to an ample reserves regime and reduce our balance sheet to no renormalize it, then the landing place for where that, what that size is going to be mm -hmm. is something you have to learn. And, and this is what's happened. Is it, so there is one school thought that says, okay, this, you know, this may be nothing to worry about, nothing to keep us up at night about a plumbing issue of sorts, but it could affect confidence and that could be a risk. Where do you fall in, in that camp? In I haven't seen it affecting confidence. Okay. I haven't seen uh, the average person actually worrying very much about the repo market. I don't think market. the average person is talking about it. But. About the repo market. What I did see is, and I think this is where I was really pleased with our mm. decisive action, we are responsible for ensuring that this, this market works and the funds rate, the federal funds rate, yeah. which is the one we target, stays in its range. And we took decisive action and announced it, even had a in-between meeting meeting and inter-meeting meeting and did that. And so that quelled the mar markets, but mm -hmm. also I think quelled some of the concerns that we weren't going to take decisive is action. Is it fair to say the Fed briefly lost control of the short-term rates that it controls? No. So. Here's why. This lost control makes it sound like something was wrong and there was danger. But if you go back prior to the financial crisis, small breaches, day-to-day -day breaches of the funds rate were, were not atypical. And so we had one of those and quickly uh, moved to ensure that it didn't keep happening. Where you start to lose confidence, and we didn't have anything close to this, is if the funds rate should trade outside of the range on a regular basis and repeatedly. But that's not what's happened, and so I wouldn't characterize it as lost control. Right, so as we wrap up, you talked a lot about how you got here and what you do now and what, what your day is filled with. But where do you go from here? Meaning, you know, what will tell you, Mary, I've succeeded in this job? That's a great question. What would tell me I've succeeded in this job is you know, when I went in, here's what I said to the entire bank, very first day. I stood up in front of them and I said, when I got the announcement, before I had even started, I said, here's what I want, here's what I want from us. Mm -hmm. I want, in five years, us to be considered the premier public service organization in the country, and maybe even the world. And what do I, why do I want this? The what San Francisco I, The Fed. San Francisco Fed. I want, when people say public service, I want them not to think about all the examples of public service they've been less happy with. I want them to think of us. But why? Not because I want to be the best, but because I want young people to think about this opportunity to be a public servant as a vocation that is a calling that they want to do it. And the only way we're going to get young people to do that is if we tell them, here's the value proposition, here's how we live. So I would feel like I was successful 
well, I already feel a little successful you in this regard. Feel very successful. Well, I already feel because that the 1,700 employees of the San Francisco Fed, they rallied around that and they said, what does it mean? And so then I was able to flesh it out and I said, we need to be a community engaged bank. That's what we need to do. We need to be in dialogue with people. We need to help them understand what we're about so, and uh, help us understand what they live with so that we can do our best work. So my success would be if the young people in our organization felt they had a career there. You know, I'm a long-term employee and I want people not to choose to stay there because it's easy. I want them to choose to stay there because it's hard and it's valuable. Is that would be success. Is this the dream or is there more? My dream higher office. My dream has always been to find a way to make the biggest contribution I could. And right now, and I've always been one who just gives 100% of my time and energy to the job I have, and I don't think about jobs of the future. And if, I just don't, I just never have. I didn't even think of this one as a job of the future. I just thought of, how can I make the biggest and greatest contribution so that I'm living up to my responsibility? I got a lot, I mean, I'm probably one of the luckier people in the world. I got so many positive things, so many people helped me. I just wanna earn a high rate of return for all those people. And finally, I think we don't talk enough about the people in our lives who help us get to where we are. And you talked about being married for 30 years. Yes, just about Shelley 30 years. Shelly is my wife. What is the most important lesson that she has taught you? So, as you might imagine, growing up like I did, I didn't put emotions. I thought emotions, my, my mantra was emotions, what are they good for? You know, throw, the, I thought the best way to get ahead was to bury, literally, everything that I had experienced and rise above it. Mm. And Shelly taught me, she's a psychologist, she taught me I'm nothing without my emotions. Oh, wow. And that my emotions create the person I am and allow me to do my best work. And every day it got hard. She would always say, honey, the best thing about you is you're willing to feel. Mm. And that's what she taught me. And she still teaches me every day. It's a pretty great lesson. Great lesson. Mary, thank you. Thank you, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Boss Files. I would love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode and people you want to hear from. So leave a review and follow me on social media at Poppy Harlow CNN. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.